This is Bonjour Chai, the Blankets and Bedding Edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal, and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we discuss the refugee support effort. Jewish leaders and other volunteers are going to the Polish-Ukrainian border to offer support and supplies. But is this a good use of resources? Plus, we discuss whether daylight savings time is bad for the Jews. David, Alana, how's your Passover preparations been? Well, we hosted a very successful event last night. Um, we had a pretty good turnout for Zoom at this point in the pandemic, and everyone was really into it and participating, and honestly, it was very engaging, even though I was kind of co-hosting with Avi. Um, it was an event through Moisha House Maple Leaf Gardens, for those of you who haven't been following us uh, on this event. Um, and I learned a lot, and it made me think about a lot of things. Um, David, what was it like for you as a spectator? Yeah, I'm so happy I got to attend. I didn't think I would be, but it was it was really a lot of fun. Um, it it uh, it brought back a lot of memories and got me excited for my hopeful preparation for the Passover Seder. I'd never heard of Hagadot.com or is it Hagadot or Hagadot? Hagadot.com. Hagadot, yeah. yeah. Wonderful I'd resource. I've never heard about that. Mm-hmm. I really want to go just like play with it. Not that I'm necessarily going to print anything from it, but just to like see what comes up. Mm-hmm. Do you want to Absolutely. explain to people what it is? So Haggadot.com is a wonderful resource that allows you to custom make your own Haggadah um, based on taking pieces from various Haggadot that they have available uploaded. Um, some of them are really big commercially available Haggadot that they have excerpts from, and others are Haggadot that were tailor-made for Haggadot.com that incorporate very different points of view and a variety of different voices and allows you to cobble together your own Haggadah that speaks to you or for your audience in your specific Seder um, and then allows you to turn it all into a PDF and print it out for yourself. And now you can have your own personalized Haggadah and you can change it every year if you want. I think that's what the main takeaway for me was. My family's been doing it the same way forever and hearing like, oh, you can do a focus on history and you can do a focus on this. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's ever going to happen because we're so like ingrained with our tradition. But I think it's really cool if one year, let's say in the future, I'm hosting my own thing I want to try changing it up or if for some people who are hosting for the first time, like many of the people who attended the Zoom event were, they feel like they don't have to do it the traditional way if they don't want to. I will I will definitely second that. I think that's the one thing that makes the Seder really special is that everyone can have their version of the Seder itself and choose, as Abby was describing, you choose what is most important for you. You choose what you feel you can leave out. And I think that was always... Uh, it was a very creative way in terms of, okay, we're all getting a little bit tired at the end of our Seder, so let's skip ahead and let's focus on these three or four songs, or let's, you know, really focus on finding the Afikoman for the kids and really highlighting the special moments, I think really brings families and friends together to sort of say, this is our version of this tradition. Also, your Seders sound really great, Avi. I was like, oh, you offered everyone to come to your Seder this year. Hope that was a genuine offer because I might try to convince my mom that we're going to your Seder this year. <laughs> Absolutely. But you got to let me know, you know, with enough time to, to prepare oh, okay. and to, to have that. Um, we do have fun Seders and we'll talk, I'm sure, more about them as we come along. But uh, the one thing that people uh, 
uh, learned about last night about our Seder is that for the most part, our uh, Seder, except for the meal, takes place in the living room because that was the nature of the original Seders, like the Greek symposium. You're all on, on couches and you're laid out and you're relaxing and you're able to discuss. And it feels very different from just sitting in front of a, a, a place setting waiting for a meal and you know that it's there and you're just like oh we have to get to them we got to get to the soup we got to get to the soup we got to finish this so we can get to that and if you're in the living room you're relaxed and you're comfortable um and you're more um symposium like perhaps can you explain the greek symposium connection uh so when the uh seder switched from being this you know pilgrimage ritual uh to the temple where everybody would sacrifice their lamb for the korban pesach for the, the the paschal sacrifice to being at home, this was right around the time when Greek symposia were in vogue, and this was the style of discussion that you would have around a meal. And so the rabbis borrowed heavily from the classic Greek symposium um, in terms of having these plates with various foods and appetizers, and that's where we get our Seder plate from, and everybody would have their own, and you would be laying on couches and reclining and discussing and drinking wine. And uh, so a lot of these elements are borrowed from the Greek symposium, and, and people don't often make that connection to where we are today. Um, where you're just sitting at the table waiting to eat and just having, you know, this very formal approach. So uh, that's that. But there's clearly going to be uh, lots of other interesting, fun tidbits uh, to learn and to hear about. Um, I, I've done these Seder workshops uh, in the past, and uh, there's still time. If somebody wants me to do one, I'll gladly come uh, to your community and do a Seder boot camp for uh, your people and uh, teach you all about how to have a fun, wonderful Seder. Um, yeah, so that was last night. That was great. Um, what was your like uh, fun moment of the day that the something that you was like anything really like offbeat that you learned that you were like oh that's kind of different or you know I never really thought about that like I I had that somebody brought up Ruth's mix which is uh, uh, her her way of saying that like it was like it's basically like gorp right Cho- uh, chocolate and and peanuts and raisins and almonds and uh, and like they there was a whole poem attached to it and then like each one of these are good on their own but together they're even better and it was the way of talking about having uh, various elements at the seder uh sometimes jewish sometimes not and uh you know bringing everybody together and everybody individually was great but bringing them all together was uh, was even better so that was a nice fun little uh addition to uh to my, to the and what was the tradition, Avi, you mentioned where you raise the Seder plate over everybody's head? Oh, yeah, that's the Moroccan one. My cousins do that because they're half Moroccan. So they go around with the Bebeluya and then they bonk you on the head with the Seder plate and then they go to the next person. It's it's very fun. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Best to be done with cast iron Seder plates that are uh, 30 pounds and about. <laughs> of course, only. Absolutely. Anyways, so uh, Passover, it's coming. Uh, faster than you think. Watch out for more Passover content on this very podcast. So before we get to our main topic, I do want to follow up on a couple of other pieces uh, from past episodes. So first of all, our guest from a couple weeks ago, Laura Lebo, has her new podcast that she mentioned, Shticks and Giggles. Uh, she mentioned it on our show, and it is now up, and you can go to the cjn.ca slash giggles to check out Shticks and Giggles, Laura Lebo's new comedy podcast. So that's first. And secondly, I, I do want to address that last week... Uh, I may have made it seem like there were zero other Canadian rabbis. There were no other rabbis in Montreal that were Montrealers. It is not true. I, 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 tr- I think I thought that I had said that there's a dearth of and that that meant that there was not that many. And I do believe that technically that 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 does mean it. But it gave the impression that there were 
so few that there was almost none or that there was absolutely none. That is not true. There are wonderful Canadian rabbis that are born Canadians. Um, I would love to, um, and guys, maybe you can help me with this. Um, First of all, audience, if you know of a Canadian rabbi, that is born Canadian and is working in Canada, I want to hear about them. We should be spotlighting them and we should be getting them uh, out there in the world and having more people know about our Canadian rabbis that are Canadian. Um, But we should figure out something to spotlight them. You guys, please tell me if there are other Canadian rabbis out there. We'd love to hear about them. Email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Tell us who your favorite Canadian Jewish, Canadian born rabbi is. And uh, we'll talk about them at some point in the future. We'll make something up. Uh, that's about it that I have to say about Canadian rabbis that you guys are out there. We love you all Canadian born rabbis. And uh, I'm sorry if I made it seem like I'm the only one. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. One month ago, Russia invaded Ukraine and set off an exodus of refugees into neighboring countries. The Jewish community globally has responded mightily. Campaigns to assist are springing up everywhere. In the past few days, though, we are starting to see a bit of a backlash, not to the needs of these refugees, but as to how this is being managed. A recent article in the Forward questioned the value of Jewish leaders going to the Ukrainian border. Terms like disaster tourism are being bandied about, and still others are pointing out that supplies might be better purchased closer to where the crisis is actually happening. With us to talk about this is Kate Bain, the Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Canada, a charity watchdog group that provides information and resources for Canadians looking to donate in an intelligent and responsible manner. Kate, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Great to be with you. Kate, you formerly worked on Bay Street as an analyst, and you bring that rigor to charitable organizations. Before we even get to the specifics of charitable spending in this current crisis, are there and should there be differences in how charities are judged in comparison to for-profit corporations? There are some differences, but they're both organizations. And we are making a giving decision. We are giving money. And I see giving very similar to investing. So you are investing in a charity to deliver results. So you'd look at things like uh, what was the financial performance. You definitely want to read the audited financial statements. There's lots of information there in the fine print. Um, And just be informed about your giving as you would uh, want to be informed about your investing. So... There's two issues at play here. First being leaders going to, quote unquote, be a witness to the tragedy. And the second being these clothing and supply drives. Uh, If we can start with the first one, right? Um, We've heard this term disaster tourism. I believe you use this term disaster tourism. Is there value um, to leaders going to the Polish-Ukrainian border um, to be there, um, to be a witness to the events that are going on there? Um, If so, what is the value of it? And if not, um, what should be happening instead? Yes. So um, 
disaster tourism. Um, this is a massive humanitarian appeal, and all of the largest international NGOs are mobilizing to respond. And this requires big fundraising in countries like the UK, Canada, America. This is one of those uh, events when everybody's eyes are riveted on the news and we're all feeling hopeless and what can we do to help? And that's where we have charities fundraising for this humanitarian appeal. What we have seen is the executive directors of some Canadian charities going to Ukraine, the ones, um, well, going to the borders of, of, of where the refugees are with their film crews. Um, and I have called this out because it's the last thing a response team needs is for the CEO to show up. And it takes them actually away from the work they're doing. So it is a bit of a, it can be a bit of a, a publicity stunt and it definitely takes away from the humanitarian work that needs to be done. I have been told by the executive director of the charity uh, I, I, I asked about that it was really important that they be there for advocacy and to be able to be accountable to the donors. But I think there's much better ways that charities can be accountable to their donors by producing reports uh, with details about what exactly they are doing. For the donated stuff, uh, the, this happens every single disaster response, whether it be in Canada or internationally. Uh, people are very generous. They want to do something. They do clothing drives. They are rummaging through their medicine cabinets, pulling out Tylenol and Band-Aids to, to, to send to Ukraine. This stuff, these unsolicited stuff arrive and they actually do harm. The Polish government has come out uh, this this weekend and said, please stop sending stuff. It's There's mountains of stuff, donated clothes now in warehouses. It needs to be stored. It needs to be sorted. It's actually blocking the, it's clogging up the borders into Ukraine. It is delaying the delivery of vital supplies. So while it's meant with the best of intentions, um, it's not wanted it's not needed. Europe's very wealthy and people who are sending bottled water to Poland, uh, Poland has safe drinking water, um, medical supplies to Ukraine. You know, Switzerland, Germany, all of these countries have massive uh, medical supplies. Um, we don't need to send diapers or baby food from Canada to Ukraine. It's, it's taking that passion and taking our desire to help and just giving it some thought about what can we really do so our, our, our support does the most good possible. So to go back to the disaster tourism, what would be the other uh, side to this? And that could be for Avi or David too, uh, because if people are going, other than just showing their face, I would imagine that there is the reverse argument for why they think it would be important, if at all. Well, tell me if you think I'm wrong, Kate, but my sense has, always, has been that these leaders are going and you, they might tell you even that this is a photo op. And this photo op is important because I will actually be able to raise more money for for Ukraine, for the Ukrainian crisis by people knowing that I'm there and I'm helping. And that if it costs me $10,000 of charitable funds to go and get that uh, photo op and to show that I'm a witness to that, then people might actually donate more. I is that a valid statement? Is that a good idea? Do we 
do we validate that? What's going on here? It's it's a valid statement, but I've always urged the media when you're covering a disaster response, don't go to the Canadian CEO who is flowing in. Talk to the staff on the ground. Talk to the frontline workers. Talk to the program directors um, who can probably actually give you as the media much better information. So the media want, has to file a story. I get that. Um, but and, and the media is incredibly powerful. And it needs to be powerful to be able to communicate to all of us what's going on. So I, I just would say to all the media, when you're when you when you have the power of your platform, make sure that you're interviewing the program directors of the Ukraine, not the CEOs. I think a lot of times, sometimes when we are ready to donate to these causes, when disasters do rise, we can be a bit skeptical. We don't know where that money is going to end up or where is, is it just going to be pocketed by the charity itself. So what I'm curious about is, um, you know, how much is actually going into is going directly to the people in need versus just upkeep of paying people's salaries in these charities? Charity work is people work. So you can have the best hospital with all the medical supplies and all the medical tools. If you don't have doctors and nurses, salaries, it's, it's, it's the salaries that actually deliver the good. So I know that donors sort of always are how much are people getting paid, and I don't want my money to go towards salaries. Um, I disagree with that. I want uh, Doctors Without Borders to have the best doctors, to have the best nurses. And donors will often say, oh, I, I don't want my money spent on logistics. In this situation, having the massive warehouses in Brussels that are already pre-stocked with emergency kits um, and having those trucks to deliver the logistics, I would say this is when you really want to give to professional charities who have a track record in humanitarian and disaster response, rather than some amateur group that has no overhead, that's completely volunteer run, going into a war situation. That's going to be an independent decision that donors have to make. But I would really urge uh, donors to, um, to give to the professionals in this case, because being a professional, being an expert makes a big difference. Sorry, I find that the professionals in these situations, um, often you have these major organizations that still don't know what they're doing because they're not humanitarian organizations. Um, so, you know, I got an email from the CEO of a major Jewish organization who is going and who is asking for donations of deodorant and diapers, and he's going to fly these over. And I was like, is this a best use of like flying over toothpaste and socks? So clearly, even very well-run organizations don't necessarily have this type of expertise in, you know, how to deal with a crisis. Abby, you're right on. Absolutely right on. So, yes. So when I'm talking about the professionals and I'm talking about the organizations, that respond to disaster responses, whether it be, um, I mean, I'm always thinking of Doctors Without Borders. I mean, they have the best track record. Um, this is what they do. They are in, they are out, they are fast, they're professional, they've got the logistics. Uh, anytime there's a disaster response, Doctors Without Borders is actually called upon by the country involved. That's who they want in first, um, which is very different from uh, Many other very well-run uh, 
Canadian charities. I mean, you you may have a very well-run Canadian food bank. You may have a very highly rated, you know, women's group. Does it have expertise in Ukraine? Has it been there? Does it know how to get there? Um, so, and yes, we do not need to send deodorant or toothpaste from Canada to Ukraine. It's, it's, it's just not the best use of money. And again, like with anything in giving, you can give and you can feel good about your giving. But if you do a little homework, your giving can have far more impact. And we need to listen to what the Ukrainian people are asking for rather than us making decisions of what we think is best for them. Listen to them. What are they calling for? And they're calling for, you know, specialized medical equipment. They're calling for humanitarian corridors. Um, Charities have a role to play in this, but it's going to be very limited compared to what our banks have done and the financial sanctions, the economic sanctions, the NATO discussions. This is a very different situation. Here's a question that I have that's a little uh, broader and looking at the the scope of all the various charities. It seems to me that every time I look at a new charity over the past month, they have their own um, crisis uh, response uh, and they are going to raise funds and regardless of the clothing drives. We've already dismissed the fact that clothing drives are useless. Um, but every one of them seems to be saying, we are collecting funds. It's all going to go directly to to Ukraine or it's all going to go to, very, to this charity. Um, wouldn't it make much more sense? And why is it not the case that everybody's just saying, go give to this charity? Put a big banner on their page saying, we are raising funds, but we are not the ones doing it because we don't need 20 or 40 or 100 and 40 different charities doing this, everybody give to these five charities because they are the, you know, the ones that are doing this best. I believe in choice and I don't think it should be state-sponsored. So if there was such a state-sponsored thing, I can pretty much guarantee you which charities would get the funding. Well, I'm not saying state-sponsored, but shouldn't a charity then, like a major charity, a major federation, go to and say, well, we're not the experts at this. Let's find the one Jewish organization that is going to do this, and we're just going to funnel our funds towards them or funnel or funnel people to say, we're not the experts, you should go to them. And instead, what we see is every organization says, we're raising money, we're raising money, we're raising money. Um, and I feel like the amount of... Um, steps between where my donation will go through a charity to another one, to another one, to another one, wouldn't it be better to just, and it's not about consolidating and saying that, you know, this is socialist charitable giving, but to say, let's find the experts, let's tell everybody to give to the really good uh, organizations instead of every single small organization. I get the sense that it's just smaller organizations and smaller charities needing to feel relevant, even if it's not their bailiwick of whatever their charity is. So Benebrith, uh, which is a human rights organization in Canada for Canadians, has a funding drive on their site, right, for for that. Um, maybe it's not part of their thing and say, we're not, it's not our, you know, portfolio, go give to this organization instead. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and, but I've, I'm also hearing from charities that's also coming from donors. So a donor actually going to a charity saying, I really like you, could you do something for Ukraine? And this charity has absolutely no experience whatsoever with Ukraine. Let's say it works with a women's program in Guatemala. And now it's being asked by its donors who are funding it to go and help women in Poland. Um, so I think the education needs to be on both sides. Yes, it is. Uh, it, this is, And we see this with every disaster response. Every charity will start fundraising for Ukraine. Uh, there are just so many. And donors really have to 
do their homework and do a little due diligence and sort of do a little thinking about which charity has a track record in response. Um, And the situation for Ukraine is going to be different than if this was an earthquake in Haiti. We'll be looking at different local charities. You'll be looking at how much capacity does that country have to respond. So in our picks, I agree with you 100%. You want to get as local and as, as specialized as possible. We have recommended to get your money into Ukraine and give directly to Ukrainian Red Cross. This takes away all those multiple different steps of money going here and then money going there. You can give directly to Ukrainian Red Cross. Now, it's not a Canadian registered charity, so you will not get a tax receipt. So you just need to balance for yourself how what's, what's the value of a tax receipt versus the confidence that your support got to Ukraine quickly. Um, one of the biggest issues that's happened in disaster responses is your money will sit in a Canadian bank account two years, three years, five years later. And that's something that we watch very closely and we report on. Uh, how quickly did our generous support to a charity, how quickly was that support used? So how should I, how should charities work better? And how should I approach my giving in the future? So I'm not going to do a management consulting for charities, but I'm going to say, how can donors give better? Do, do, for, do you do that, by the way, for a fee? Like, should charities call no. you? Or you don't do that. You only help at the user level. Just as you talk about how many charities are off fundraising, there are just as many management consultants helping um, char- uh, helping charities. Um, our work is solely for funders, for donors, for you. Um, we're independent, we're objective. And I just think if we can help donors be informed and give them information and share our framework of how we think about giving, our giving can do so much more good. And that's something that that we can control. Yeah, uh, I want to wrap it up. And I, I have an extra little thing. You know, there was a, like I said, there was an article in the forward about this. And uh, there was a rabbi that was quoted at the very end of the article, uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin, who is going with 25 rabbis to Poland. And he says, I'm bringing stuffed toys. I want to see the look in their children's eyes. Um, and as his thoughts for those who warned him against organizing the trip, he said, yes, there were people who were critical of this trip. You didn't check with this person. You didn't check with that person. You don't speak the language, Salkin said. I have nothing printable to say. And that was his, the quote that he had at the end. And, and, and I th- thought about this, and I was reading this and realizing that there are often times when we are giving something charitable, and it's more for us than it is for the other individual. Um, and so if you are giving and you're noticing that this person is giving so that they could feel better, um, or the person in the mediator in between is doing this so that they can stay relevant, so that they can feel better for themselves and that they can show that they have, you know, a foot, uh, you know, a finger in the pie, uh, then, then that's a, a red flag for me as well. Um, and so I don't know if, if you concur or not, uh, you are shaking your head, you're nodding your head, I should say. And, uh, I don't know if you have any final words in terms of thinking about what one should look at um, when assessing, is this a valuable use of my time and my energy and my resources? Back to David's point. When did charitable giving pivot to being about my donor engagement? How much I enjoyed going to a dinner 
or how about how what satisfaction I felt about participating in a run or an event or a golf game? When did charitable giving turn to about me having a good time and being entertained or seeing the look in a child's eye when you give them a new shiny toy? When did, and I really hope you're right, Avi, I hope we can pivot back so that our giving does the most good possible, so that it has impact. And it's not about us. The narratives, um, the stories, the pitches are very strong and they are emotionally pulling on our heartstrings. But I really hope we can think about um, using data and analysis research so that our giving can do the most good for the people it is intended to serve. And you can see the impact of a surgical kit for mass surgeries. Just There are different ways to give and giving toys and giving hygiene products is nice. It's feel good. It has no impact. It doesn't help that child's life. Giving them vaccinations, um, you know, no kid ever you know, had a great look in their eye when they were getting a polio vaccine, but that helps save lives. So let's think about doing good and having impact rather than feeling good. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, Kate Bain is the Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Canada, and we thank you for your time. And you can find links to the stories that we spoke about in the show, as well as to Charity Intelligence Canada in our show notes and as always, we welcome your comments and your questions. Email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to tell us what you thought. Daylight Savings Time was adopted by the U.S. Senate recently, and there's a lot of talk about this actually going to becoming law. And if it becomes law in the U.S., it will likely become law in some way in Canada because of the difficulties uh, and similarities of our geography and ability to trade and work with each other. Um, there has been a backlash within the Jewish community, or have been talk about this not necessarily being good for the Jews. Uh, the Good Israel of America, which is a major uh, advocacy organization for the Haredi population in the U.S., uh, has gone in, on the record and saying they don't agree with this. They think that it's going to be difficult for uh, kids to uh, go to school in the dark in the morning uh, when schools start early, and as well that they are uh, going to have very difficulty, a lot of difficulties with minion in the morning, with morning services having to start much later and people going to work later. Um, what do you guys think? Is daylight savings time actually good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? What's your take on it? So maybe you can even tease this out a bit more, Avi, and explain it to our listeners, because is the idea behind it you cannot start praying until the sun has actually risen? Well, there's actually different ways, right? And there are actually a lot of different halachic times for when you can start, but it all stands in relation to when uh, the sun rises. So I don't want to get into the technicalities of how early before the sun rises you can actually do morning services. But if you push morning, if you push morning services off by an hour, if, if the sun rises off by an hour, uh, many morning services will have to start later as a result of that. So they're saying that people are going to be late for work. They're saying that kids will have to go to school in the dark. Um, you know, I can see that some morning services may have to start later. Um, I'm not entirely sure how late uh, that is to the point where people are going to go to work late. I mean, I remember I'm in Montreal and most people don't commute 
you know, more than 20 minutes or half an hour to get to work. So it's not like New York where a one to two hour commute is normal for a lot of people um, or Toronto. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that when I was looking this up. Maybe this is really dumb. And um, when it comes to like science or numbers, my brain just turns off. But I'm going to ask this question anyway. The sun is not going to change what time it rises, even if you change the number. So I don't really understand how it's actually making much of a difference other than if someone has to start work at nine and normally they would go like Dovin at eight, but now they have to Dovin at nine. Is that the idea? Is like, yeah. So, so it's, it's switching the timing, not the correct, sun is not exactly. changing <laughs> when it rises just because we change the number. No, no, no. The sun is completely changing. <laughs> the sun has agreed with the U S Senate that they are going to now, you know, the sun is going to extrapolate and move around and sort of say, okay, Marco Rubio, I've agreed with your petition. I will change my whole philosophy of the past billion years. Well, you know, you never know. Are you guys actually daylight savings or standard time? Like, does this affect you at all? Because before I even get to dealing with Agura, I don't have an issue. Like, when people talk about, oh, my God, my whole week is ruined. It's the worst ever when I have to switch every time. I'm like, okay, so I wake up an hour late and I, or I wake up an hour earlier and then the next day I'm fine or whatever it is. I don't feel that much more sluggish. It's, it is what it is. I, I, maybe it's just me. It's the, it's the sort of moment where you realize, okay, we're in for the next four months of darkness, perpetual snow, cold darkness. And you say, oh, here we go. It's October. This is what we're going to do itself. And I, I used to be in favor. I sort of said, you know what? I want to switch completely to daylight savings time because I want to be able to have dinner when there is still a bit of light out at the end of the day itself. But realizing, look, I'm in Calgary. We are very north compared to the border itself. We're thinking that if we kept daylight savings time, if we if we adopted, then it may not even be light till about 930 in the middle of December. And that is a pretty depressing thought where you wake up, you chat, you you shower, you change, you go to work, you drive in traffic, you get to the office and it is still pitch blackout. And that is in some ways quite depressing, I would say. I don't really I feel pretty ambivalent about it. I mean, I feel like the first couple days are hard and I'm someone who gets very affected by my sleep. So I feel like the recent change in time, I was just lying in bed wired and thinking, why can I not fall asleep? And then remembered it was daylight savings. But then, you know, you adjust. It's not going to like rock my world for a month. Yeah, um, I, I'm i with you. I, I can go either way. Keep it all on standard. Keep it all on daylight. Keep going back and forth. I think the back and forth is a little silly, but I'm not entirely like convinced one way or another. You're so easygoing. Um, you can just, maybe, you know, go either easy. way. It doesn't but, matter. But I, Nothing affects I, I you. Just, the issue that I have is I can't figure out a good Israel of America, right? Kids going to school in the dark, right? My kids, like, in the winter, they, first of all, who's walking to school anymore, right? It's it's the, the most rare thing in the world to, to have kids that walk to school on a regular basis. I can't imagine that many people actually send their kids walking. By themselves, you mean, or just generally? When you live in the city, like, I, I'm in the Mile End right now, and I used to babysit for uh, an old Akin teacher of mine a few years ago. And her kids went to school in the Myland where they were also living just up the street. So I would walk them to school. Yeah, the argument that they had about like, oh, in the 70s when they tried it for a year of daylight savings time only, um, there were so many more assaults on kids who were going to school in the dark, right? Because it was still dark outside. I was like, I don't think that's happening in 2022 anymore. And and I don't think that there are that many kids walking to know. school. And I think there's that much more busing and carpooling and driving kids to school. And I don't think that that's an issue. Uh, the morning services issue, 
I'm kind of unconvinced on that either because the flip side is just going to be just as true. Instead of having 4 p.m. services, which a lot of synagogues deal with and have a very difficult time um, with afternoon services because they're at 4 and people are still at work, well, then services will be at 5 instead of at 4, and it'll be a lot easier to get people to come in the evening. So whatever you lose from the morning, you're going to gain in the evening. And, you know, I, I don't. I think it's a bit of a wash. The early Shabbat... So I guess that means that, you know, there'll be some Shabbats that in the in the winter that will start at, uh, I don't know, five instead of four in Montreal. I'm okay with that. So I'll tell you who this is going to affect the most, Avi. It's going to be the kids who were so spoiled rotten to be able to get out of Jewish school at 2.30 or 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon that we all loved and adored because the sun was setting and we can get home. And now these kids are going to have to put up with staying a bit longer in the classroom until the sun actually does set. Headline. Avi is hurting the kids. I'd actually be really uh, interested in hearing what our listeners think on this topic. If you have any thoughts on daylight savings, please send them our way. Yes. Send them to bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm curious if people actually have strong feelings about it because I get the sense that none of us really have strong feelings one way or another. Time is time and it just, you tell me what time it is and that's okay. David does have strong feelings, but... uh, I have strong feelings on everything. We're two to one on the ambivalent scale here, um, and uh, Calgary should go towards, uh, you know, keeping the the change back and forth. Uh, but we believe that here in the uh, coastal uh, provinces, the elites will uh, will stay on daylight savings time. We're gonna separate and do our own thing. We're at the point in our show where uh, we have some words of wisdom. We are in the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. Do you know why it's called the book of Leviticus, guys? You have any idea? I mean, I learned it in the Hebrew word, so Leviticus means very little to me, to be honest. But you've heard this word, right? Yeah, I've heard it, but that's not how I was taught in school. It comes from the word Levi, from a Levite, ah. right? It is the book that is given to the Levites to be able to serve. It has the uh, the work that's there. We are going through the book of Leviticus right now. Um, and as we learned a few weeks ago, we have a Levite in our midst. We actually have a Kohen. David, you are a Kohen. And... You had reached out to me with some questions about it, and I thought, what a better time to talk about kehunah, to talk about the idea of priesthood, than to uh, work it through the book of Leviticus, through the book of Vayikra. David, what do you want to know about being a Kohen? It is all very true. I grew up, I, I've been told by my family that I belong to the priestly class of the Kohanim. I am a Kohen. So Avi, I, I was I was thinking, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. I got tons of questions on what it really means, but maybe if you can start me off with sort of what is so special with being a Kohan? So uh, to be a Kohen means that you are, as we said, a descendant of the priests uh, of Aaron the Kohen, um, and by extension then of Levi, right, who was the great-great-great-grandfather of Aaron the priest, right, one of the 12 tribes. And you got bestowed as a Kohen with the work of the priesthood in the temple, right? You were, by virtue of your birth, you were a civil servant. Uh, You were the one that was going to be trained to offer sacrifices or to do the work of the temple itself. Um, This in theory, uh, and if you look at all of ancient the ancient Near East, was generally given to the firstborns. Uh, and the Torah tells us that Reuben lost the right of the firstborn. Um, and we can get into the discussion at another time because it is very interesting why everybody keeps losing the rights of the firstborn in uh, the book of Genesis. Um, but Reuben loses the right of the firstborn, and it transfers over um, at least for the priestly uh, work that is going to be that was going to be done to uh, Levi. 
Right. And therefore, they were the ones that were entrusted with all of this work. They were seen as holy. Um, and therefore, all of the things that we have as vestigially um, discussed in uh, today's day and age about what happens with the kihuna is related to that. While we do not offer sacrifices anymore, uh, we want people to remain, quote unquote, uh, spiritually or, um, you know, from a spiritual perspective, pure, um, so that in the event that the Messiah comes, you'll be able to do these sacrifices all over again. And therefore, you know, you have these discussions about not going into a cemetery or not coming into contact with a dead body. All of that relates to this idea that you are related somehow to the work of the temple, and therefore you should remain pure in that way. So that's that's what a Kohen is historically in a nutshell. So everything out of all your wonderful explanation, the thing that really stood out for me was civil servant. So what are my benefits? What what kind of package do I get at the end of it? So if I commit to this, I want a nice golden parachute. So you don't get a golden parachute, but you get a portion of all of the sacrifices and you get a tithe, right? So there are certain... Um, tithes that any in an agricultural society the way in which they tax people is they say whatever you grow you get a small fraction of that and it has to go towards poor people a piece of it a part of it has to go towards uh you know spending it in jerusalem and a part of it goes towards the priests um that is actually the term where we get challah from right uh the word challah is actually the is not a type of bread but it's it's the type of tithe that you take from the bread to give to um to the priests as as they're tithe for that. Um, and, you know, we can get into, you know, again, more details when we get to those portions or, or, or things like that. Um, but you get a portion of uh, flour, you would get a portion of fruits and vegetables, and you would get a portion of all of the sacrifices that were offered. And, and it's choice pieces, right? Like the cheek. I'm a big fan of beef cheeks. Um, they make for an excellent cut um, of stew. Um, it's often a, f a feature of my Passover Seder, actually, meal is beef cheek, um, if you can find them because they're hard to find. So you get that piece. You get various other pieces. There you go. That's uh, one of the perks of being a Kohen. I'm curious because um, we talked a lot of, at the Seder event last night, the Passover boot camp about um, how women have played a role and how people have shifted the Seder to fit women. What about when it comes to co like the Kohen tradition? Um, are there movements that have said women should also be able to be a Kohen Gadol if the temple were to come back or should adhere to these certain things? How does that work? So what you see now is you, uh, you used to refer to somebody as a Bat Kohen, right? The daughter of a Kohen. And you see this move now towards being called a Kohenet, right? Just a female Kohen, right? Uh, or a woman who that. is part of that Kohen world. Um, and they're... Um, they don't have any ritual aspects listed in, you know, any of the work because it was a male-centered thing. There has not been any discussions in the feminist world about women saying we want to return to that. Uh, I actually married a Kohenet, um, but sh as she says, you know, Maimonides likes to say that if you're if a Kohenet should only marry another Kohen, and at the very least she should marry a scholar. And she goes, well, you know, you know, she'll say, well, I didn't luck out on either one of those, but then she'll, of course he's a scholar and everything's wonderful. Um, um, so um, it, it tends to be more vestigial today. So I guess you don't have people talking about it in a practical manner. There is an entire movement called the Kohenet movement, and it is the, uh, they call themselves Jewish priestesses, and it is a very Jewish witchy tradition that, I have that is dealing of. with a lot of witchiness and bringing that into the Jewish world. It does has a lot less to do with the typical understanding of what a Kohen was in the standard uh, rabbinic literature of the time. But my understanding about the, these priestesses is that they're not necessarily people from the bloodline of a Kohen. They're just like, I want to be one of these people. Isn't that kind of their philosophy? 
or am I misunderstanding? I, I believe that that is the case. It is not hereditary. And we can talk about right. heredity at a different point in time. Um, but yeah, I just want to, I'll finish it off by pointing out, right, that that is where we stand now. Um, and, you know, you guys are actors, right? There's this is really interesting progression in the three, uh, in this week, in the past two weeks of Vayikra, where um, the first portion, Parshat Vayikra, talks about the uh, the idea of, of sacrifices in general and how sacrifices uh, exist and the fact that there are different ones. The second w- uh, portion last week discusses the um, actual instructions for how to do sacrifices for the Kohanim. It's almost like their stage directions, if you, if you may. And this week is when you actually see them actually uh, being done and being executed at the consecration of the tabernacle in the desert, where Moshe and Aharon do the service, right, and actually perform it. And I always think about that as like, well, you have the the scenario, and then you have the stage directions, and then you have the actual play being performed. Um, and that's this week's portion, Parshat Shemini, before we move on to other topics. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see how the development of these Parshas work without having to say, well, it's just boring, dry, technical uh, discussions, and that's it. But Avi, how can I actually prove it? How can I prove my bona fides, my, 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 my Kohanim chops? Well, that's a great question, um, but I think that we spent a bit of time already on Kohanim this week, and let's pick it up next week. Uh, so if you want to know how you prove your uh, kehuna and uh, the fact that you descend from the line of Kohanim, let's talk about it next week. Let's bring it up because we have lots of time to talk about Kohanim-related pieces um, for the future. So stay tuned for that. And now we're at the point in our show where we talk about our nachas. The thing that has been making us feel good about our Judaism and our life the past week. Alana, what's your Nachas of the Week? It was just announced that there's going to be a new documentary on Amazon Prime about Jewish author Judy Bloom, who I very much grew up with, um, with the Fudge series, which I read in elementary school, Blubber, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, which is coming out soon as a movie in itself. And so they're going to span uh, 50 years of Judy Bloom's life and career, and it's apparently a coming-of-age tale about her, um, and uh, all the controversy about all the, um, you know, sexuality and hormonal changes and all the different things that she discussed in her children's books, um, and uh, hearing from her, hearing from um, other people who grew up with her books, and uh, I think it will be quite fascinating. Did either of you grow up with any, I know they're, they tended to be more gendered towards women, but we did read some of them in school too. So did you grow up with, with any of them? Oh, I've definitely heard of Judy Bloom. Yeah, for sure. So I, they were on my radar. I'm sure I've read a bunch of them. I cannot remember for the life of me, which ones they were and uh, what they were gendered. I, I can attest to that for sure. But I was, you know, literarily omnivorous and I read everything. So I'm sure they came across and I said, hey, another book to read. I'm going to read that one. And uh, but I cannot tell you which one it was. It probably was not. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Yeah, that's like like about becoming a, becoming a woman, um, getting her first period, getting her first bra. It was a very tween What was your favorite one, What was my favorite one? Probably the Fudge series, which was actually the most, if we're talking about gender, like male-centric one, but we read those in elementary school, and it was about this little kid who um, called himself Fudge, and who was always creating havoc in the house and in school, and it was just like a really fun series. David, what's your nachas? Well, last night, Avi questioned my sporting match credentials on our Passover Seder get-together itself, so 
this is what my nachis is. Um, if any of you are fans of soccer or football, as they call it in the UK, Arsenal, uh, the team, vows to ban any club member who sings or sang anti-Semitic chants. There was a video showing fans singing an anti-Tottenham song ending with the words effing Jews. It's now being investigated by the West Midlands police. Now, they quoted um, as saying the Arsenal FC, which I believe... Maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Does it stand for football club? They have vowed to ban... ban it it does. does. Good. Good. I'm on it. They have banned any club member found to be part of a group of football fans filmed chanting this uh, anti-Semitic song. And this is what they quoted as saying. Anti-Semitism in any form is wholly unacceptable and we support all efforts to kick it out of the game. We hope that those individuals conducting this vile chant are identified and dealt with in the strongest way possible. We condemn all discriminatory language on and off the pitch. Um, I don't know what the pitch is, but it sounds <laughs> it sounds good. I even know that. You David. know what? What is a pitch? It, like in the field, like the soccer field, the pitch. Our, our producer is sort of losing it over at the other end where he's like, how, David, how do you not know what the pitch is itself? I don't know what the pitch is, okay? For those of you who don't realize, David is the kind of guy who watch, like has a shirt that says the sports on it. And he thinks that that's like, you know. Also, can we talk about how in that quote you just read, they had like a soccer pun in it. They're like, we need to kick this anti-Semitism out of the field or something like that. I didn't even realize that, but yes. David didn't even realize that. I did not even realize that. I guess I guess they do kicks uh, on, on the sporting matches itself they kick things yes, yes yes that's why they call it football in the uk that makes a lot sense that makes a lot of sense Avi, what's your nachos um i uh want to shout out uh a friend of mine actually she is the wife of a former guest penny ungar sargon um she has a kickstarter out um called I Can't Believe It's Not Chametz. And it's for a cookbook that will be coming out this summer, but you will get access to it if the Kickstarter gets funded, etc. It's her takes on uh, recipes that are so wonderful that you will not believe that they are not chametz. Um, and you guys know that I'm, uh, despite the fact that I'm not a big fan of recipes that need to be adapted for Passover. I don't think we, this came up in the conversation yesterday um, in the preparing for the Seder. Did we discuss Oh, this yeah. You, rant, you ranted about it for like 20 minutes. Oh, that's right. I totally did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't. I was like, did I talk about this? I ranted. I do not like things that are needing to be adapted for Passover because you never actually, um, they never actually work and you're never actually really replicating something. Um, but Penny is an amazing chef. I know her. I've eaten her food. Uh, she is really good. And if she says that she has recipes that she wants to adapt um, and she has a, a cookbook about it, then I do believe her. And you should go check it out. And you should absolutely um, go fund her Kickstarter. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And um, go support it. There will be all sorts of cool bonus videos. And if that's your thing, if you really actually do like to, and I'm not going to uh, cast aspersions on your cooking, then uh, this cookbook will be exactly for you. So uh, check it out. I can't believe it's not Chametz, Penyanger Sargon. Um, that's my Nachas of the Week. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of March 25th, Shabbat Shemini. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sporty Sklar. 